You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So I think the conspiracies often give people that that hope and that community first and foremost. The ideology, the actual details of the belief is really secondary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben shares the story of a harsh FTC order against Drizzly and its CEO for data privacy abuses. And later in the show, my conversation with Beth Goldberg from Jigsaw on misinformation and its impact on people online. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So my story comes from the Washington Post technology page uh, by Kat Zakruski, and it is about a new FTC order against the alcohol delivery company Drizzly and Hmm. its CEO, James Corey Rellis. So Drizzly is an alcohol delivery company. I'm not a big drinker, uh, so I never used it. Apparently, it was very popular, is very popular, uh, particularly as people wanted to order booze at home during the pandemic. Yes. Uh, But apparently, yes. (laughs) Uh, as I'm sure many of you can relate. Apparently, their data privacy practices were not robust, uh, according to the FTC. The article here in the FTC estimates that the data of over 2.5 million customers were compromised because of negligent uh, data privacy policies uh, from this company. Hmm. So the FTC has a new commissioner who promised to come in and... harsher penalties for these types of data privacy uh, violations. And that's exactly what her and the rest of the FTC uh, has done here. So in a new order that was released this week, the FTC is imposing penalties on both the company, Drizzly, which was uh, purchased by Uber while this uh, case was going through litigation, and the CEO, James Corey Rellis, uh, for these imposing penalties for these data privacy violations. What's unique about this order is that it applies against the CEO even if he decides to move to a different company. And Mm. though these sanctions don't include significant monetary penalties, there are required actions that both the CEO and Drizzly have to take going forward, including things like instituting multi-factor authentication uh, and other data security best practices. So what the FTC has done here is set a new precedent where the CEO of a company is being held liable even if he decides to move on. I think one thing that motivated the current members of the FTC is the backlash to 
the order against Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, where Mark Zuckerberg himself was not held liable, uh, wasn't forced to pay any penalties, wasn't even named in the order. Uh, Hmm. So there's some level of personal accountability that was missing. And with this ruling, if this becomes a precedential ruling and it's something that the FTC continues to do when we see these data privacy violations, perhaps that's an uh, increased incentive for these CEOs to institute best practices because they can't just uh, skip away from the company, go somewhere else, and be free from these sanctions and penalties. So it's really a groundbreaking decision. We've seen other decisions where uh, individuals have been named and, and held accountable and are forced to do something under FTC orders, Uh, But usually those are cases uh, involving fraud or misleading advertising. This, at least to my knowledge, is the first time that this standard has been applied to faulty data privacy and data security practices. Uh, Hmm. So it's really the FTC paving a new road here uh, that hopefully will leave organizations and most importantly, the leadership of those organizations to be more careful about protecting personal data. So help me understand here exactly to what degree does the FTC have the authority to enforce things? Do they, you know, can can they send someone to jail? <laughs> you know what how strong are they? Not very strong uh, until we have a federal data privacy statute that gives them greater enforcement powers. They're going to be hamstrung. I mean really the order here is uh, forcing the company and the CEO to adopt data security practices. There are not significant financial penalties. Uh, there's obviously no criminal liability here. No one's slapping handcuffs on the CEO. I think the question that uh, we might see answered as a result of this case is, is this type of punishment, or I guess, you know, as they refer to it as uh, at our kids' daycare, corrective action, <laughs> the type of behavior intended to to uh, to change uh, change the instinct of, of these CEOs and, and redirect huh. them in a more positive direction. Is that going to be enough of an incentive uh, for them to actually make changes? Uh, and I I think the tools that the FTC has certainly leaves that an open question. I don't think there's mm-hmm. enough of a stick that they're going to be that threatened uh, when the FTC comes out with an order like this. It would still be better for them to comply, both for uh, the legitimacy of the company, the reputation of the CEO, and there are certain things that the FTC can do in terms of additional fines. But no one's getting handcuffs slapped on them. Uh, We're not talking about massive financial penalties here. Until we have a data privacy statute that allows the FTC to really go after these companies for shoddy data security practices, then I think we're left with this sort of patchwork where the FTC can use the powers it has, but those powers are relatively limited. So in terms of the CEO, the fact that the FTC is having some of these things stick to the CEO regardless of of whether or not they leave the company does that have the potential to make the CEO kind of radioactive so that you know the, the next company could say hey you you got this uh you got this stink on you you know we're going to think twice about bringing you on board yeah and it's also beyond just the general stink it means that there's going to be a watchful eye on the company from federal regulators mm. uh, if he takes over a, a separate service then there's going to be some sort of suspicion because of the past experience with Drizzly. 
And I think the company is going to face greater compliance costs as they try to avoid additional penalties. The one limiting factor here is kind of what we were talking about. The FTC itself, not only are their powers limited, but their resources are limited. So anonymous uh, staff members to the FTC said to the author of this article that the agency lacks the personnel and technical expertise to effectively monitor uh, and enforce most of these orders. You can see why they wouldn't want to say that publicly. Uh, but I think that's going to be a limiting factor here on how big of an impact this has on the company, the CEO, and the industry at large. I think what the signal here is, is the FTC is willing to use the full extent of the powers uh, that it currently has in a way that past FTCs have not been able to do. Uh, hmm. That's certainly noteworthy. I think if you really cared about holding these companies and CEOs accountable with actual massive financial penalties, uh, civil penalties, or potentially some type of criminal sanction, uh, I think we're just going to have to wait on Congress to pass a data privacy law. And that's ultimately one of the main things that a federal data privacy law would do is it would empower the FTC uh, with additional staff to, to make sure they do have technical expertise and personnel to enforce some of these orders. That would be part of a federal data privacy bill. Um, but until that's enacted, we're just sort of in this area where the FTC is going to do the best that it can, uh, even if it's not going to have that much of a ripple effect on the industry at large. And to what degree is the FTC generally independent or do they uh, go with the you know the headwinds of, of whatever uh, president might be in power? So they are political appointees, uh, but once they are sworn in, there's not a direct line of accountability to the president. So it's not like the head of a separate federal agency, like a cabinet secretary, where they serve at the pleasure of the president. Mm. Currently, the FTC uh, has a Democratic majority, or at least a majority of their commissioners were appointed by President Biden. Uh, there still is uh, one Republican member of the FTC whose term has not expired. Um, so they do have a certain degree of independence. I think because President Biden has been able to put his stamp on the FTC, especially with this uh, chairwoman Khan, who was just sworn in a couple of months ago, uh, I think you're going to see it reflect his policy priorities, which are greater, more robust data privacy protections. The Republican member of the commission dissented from the part of the order here that held the CEO accountable, basically saying that this was going to have a adverse impact on businesses uh, and their ability to, to operate independently, and that we should not be subjecting uh, businesses to the judgments of commissioners on the FTC. I think that's the difference between Democratic appointees to this commission and Republican appointees. And certainly, if we were to have another change in party at the White House, you might see the FTC revert back to, to where it had been previously. Um, so there isn't a direct line of accountability, but certainly I think the current majority on the FTC reflects the will of the current administration. All right. Well, it's an interesting story for sure, and uh, we will keep an eye on it. Uh, I suppose uh, part of me thinks, yay, there's <laughs> accountability. Imagine that, right? <laughs> I know. I mean, I like the idea of leadership being held accountable and it not just being something attached to the company, um, because oftentimes right. I think leaders end up being immune from these types of orders. Uh, they move on to their mm -hmm. next gig, and they're not the ones who are subject to these penalties. 
Uh, and I think yeah. so much of instituting robust security practices is buy-in from CEOs, from the C-suite. I think we're more likely to have that type of buy-in if the FTC is willing to impose accountability on them. Right. So my story this week uh, also comes from the Washington Post. Uh, this is a story by Devlin Barrett, Perry Stein, and Ellen Nakashima. Uh, and I'd say this is probably the big story this week when it comes to, uh, for those who are following the law enforcement beat, uh, there was a press conference uh, this week from the DOJ uh, where they brought out uh, the big guns, <laughs> the, the, the head of the the head of the department, uh, Mr. Merrick Garland, uh, Attorney General, uh, who talked about uh, ten Chinese spies and government officials have been accused of malign schemes. Uh, ben, I, first of all, I, I, one of the things that struck me about this press conference was that they were they were a little cagey about it. Yeah, there so was a lot of speculation had- on Twitter because <laughs> right, DOJ put out right, an announcement right. that said major law enforcement action to be announced at one thirty or whatever, and everybody's right. like, "Is and it so Trump?" I think a lot of people were th- yeah. right, exactly, exactly. But no, it was no, not. It was. It was not. It was about uh, no. It was about uh, China. So uh, evidently, a couple of Chinese intelligence officers uh, have been charged with uh, trying to. Um, get information to a Chinese-based telecommunication company. Um, And uh, the DOJ is saying that Beijing is trying to lie, cheat, and steal its way into a competitive advantage in technology. Ben, what did you make of this? So there are a couple interesting elements of this. Uh, One is that the source for this was a double agent. So the Mm. FBI employed somebody who pretended to be a friendly U.S. intelligence agent, presented himself or herself, uh, that part remains classified, to the Chinese Mm. as uh, somebody who was on their side, who was willing to divulge trade secrets about a company that's suspected to be Huawei, although that is not confirmed uh, in the indictments. But it turns out that this agent was working actually for our uh, intelligence agencies and the Department of Justice. Uh, So another case of just talking to the wrong people. You cannot trust anyone. Uh, so I think this was very good investigative work. And I think the, uh, F the director of the FBI and attorney general Garland were very thankful for this double agent for doing the difficult work here in terms of the content of it. I mean, I think this is part of a broader struggle to protect our intellectual property rights from Chinese aggressors. Uh, we've seen that manifest itself in a number of ways, I think the DOJ is taking a harsher tack against uh, the Chinese to try and build up some sort of disincentive so that they'll stop engaging in this type of espionage. Uh, In terms of the expected impact, I mean, I think it's going to be muted. I don't think China will extradite these indicted indicted individuals who have close associations with the Chinese government uh, to actually be tried in the United States. Usually these are more symbolic indictments. Uh, If we can't exercise jurisdiction over them, at least it's a shot across the bow that if we find you and you're in this country or you're in another country with which we have a working extradition treaty, uh, then you're going to be subject to arrest and and prosecution. But I don't think these individuals, at least in the short term, are going to be held accountable. Yeah, there were two other cases here uh, that they highlighted as well. One of them uh, involved uh, four people who were charged with being 
um, uh, illegal agents on China's behalf, uh, using a, a Chinese academic institution that the U.S. government said was basically a, a sham. It was a, a cover for these folks' activities. Um, but then the third one, I think, is kind of fascinating. Um, evidently, there's been an ongoing program from China that they refer to as Operation Fox Hunt. And that doesn't that sound suspicious where, at all. No, not at all. And, <laughs> and uh, evidently, the Chinese operatives... Uh, they use threats, surveillance, and intimidations to coerce individuals to return to China. Um, and it leaves me scratching my head is how could things possibly be better for them if they go to China, you know? Yeah, I mean, when you're using things like coercion and possibly threats of violence uh, or, uh, you know, hoarding personal information about these people over them, then, yeah, I can understand why somebody might be coerced or, or threatened to comply. Uh, but certainly, I don't think it's anybody's dream at this moment in time to go to China over the United States, especially as they are still active in their COVID zero policies. Uh, so there's not much you can do in most of China's uh, major cities at the moment. Um, but because these agents are using coercion tactics, I think sometimes uh, people in the United States might feel forced to comply. What do you make of this sort of in, in a big picture kind of way? When when we look at the, the the relationship between the U.S. and China, obviously we're dependent on each other. Uh, we want to get along, but where where do these things fit into that relationship? So I think it reflects uh, an evolving understanding on the part of the Department of Justice. So there was this controversial China initiative, uh, which was a little more aggressive. Uh, they were doing things like uh, targeting Chinese professors for grant fraud prosecution uh, focused on espionage. Uh, I think the Biden administration thought that that was a tactic that was not a best practice for our law enforcement agencies and not productive to our relationship with the PRC. Uh, I think hmm. what this action says is for things that really matter, violating international law and interrupting fair trading practices uh, as it relates to intellectual property, the DOJ is not afraid to take action, even if uh, it will cause further diplomatic riff uh, with China. And so I think uh, that as a potential signal Again, without much of an enforcement mechanism, maybe it's not going to do much, but it still shows our aggressive posture, uh, that we're willing right. to call out this behavior, issue these indictments, uh, and prevent these uh, violations that go against international laws and treaties. So it's a law enforcement action that I suppose ultimately is, is rather toothless to send a political message. Is, would that be a fair way to frame it? Yeah, I mean, it's toothless in the sense that I don't think these individuals in the short term are going to face prosecution. But there are consequences right. for this type of indictment. I mean, mm. Edward Snowden was indicted and uh, could never return to the United States or any other country uh, in the Western world without facing extradition. That certainly changes uh, how these individuals will have to live their lives. They're going to be stuck in China or Russia or wherever uh, otherwise, they will face extradition. So it's not entirely toothless. It's just that I don't think we're going to get a moment where these individuals are hauled in front of uh, a U.S. judge and, and uh, put in shackles and handcuffs and sent to prison in the near future. Yeah. All right. 
Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Beth Goldberg. She is from a company called Jigsaw. And our conversation centers on misinformation and how that affects people online. Here's my conversation with Beth Goldberg. I've been asked a few times in different ways, basically, are we in a golden age of conspiracy theories? Um, Or are we somehow more vulnerable or susceptible today than ever before? The good news is I don't think we are. You're absolutely right that we've had conspiracy theories around as long as human beings have been talking to each other. And I I don't really have good data to be able to say, yes, we have more conspiracies now than we did 50 or 100 years ago. So we, we can't really do this clean before and after. But what I think we can get hints about is, is there more awareness of conspiracy theories? And is there more amplification of conspiracy theories? You know, if you think about conspiracies about the moon landing being a hoax in the 1960s or JFK's assassination being staged. Those were incredibly popular. In fact, they remain incredibly popular. At some points, you know, upwards of 50% of Americans believe some of those conspiracies. But then they typically level off over time, right? There's this spike in awareness, and then they kind of dip out of the public conscience. Um, and, And if you take surveys of people, you know, the percentage of Americans, for example, who believe that the Kennedy assassination was was staged is sort of steady over time um, and, and relatively low. I think what we're seeing now is you can get a big spike in the number of people who believe a conspiracy theory can become really popular. You know, think about 9-11 being a hoax or some of the more recent conspiracies about elections. And then they don't disappear as easily, right? They're able to stay in the public conscience because we have social media really amplifying and sort of distorting and continuing to play on these these conspiracies. And in some cases, they even stick around as social movements. You're seeing things like QAnon um, that sort of absorb these conspiracies into what's really a, a movement and keep them alive um, as part of the, the identity of that movement. Um, so that that to me is what's changed. It's not necessarily that we have more conspiracies. It's just that we have new ways to amplify them and, and sort of keep them in our conscience. You know, as, as we're recording this, um, Alex Jones is on trial for, uh, you know, his own um, 
peddling of conspiracies with um, the the Sandy Hook uh, tragedy. I mean, is that to what degree is that part of it as well? That there are folks who are out there using these to make money, to grow their audiences. And, and, and so in doing so, they're feeding these. You're absolutely right. When we think about the peddlers of disinformation, you can think of two key motives. There, there obviously are many more, but the two big ones, the primary drivers are profit. You know, people who are spreading misinformation purely for economic gain. And, and we've seen this um, throughout different conflicts. Um, you know, we've got that now with the, the war in Ukraine. We saw that previously around the 2016 election. There were whole content farms in Macedonia and other countries where people who had no stake in the U.S. election were pumping out disinformation about it purely because they could monetize that content and make money off it. So, so there's definitely folks who are doing this for profit rather than, than ideology. The other big driver, though, is still geopolitical, sort of pol- you know, politicized motives. Um, so I can restart that sentence. The other major driver for conspiracy theories and disinformation is politics. It's folks with a geopolitical motive who are trying to amplify a certain party or a certain side of the narrative. Um, and so that that may be part of what's at play with Alex Jones beyond just him trying to to make a buck. Can you help us understand the the psychological elements here? I mean, why why do these things have such a strong grip over the people who find themselves believing them? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of myths about who believes conspiracy theories, who's susceptible to to falling down that rabbit hole, and, and why they do. And we found. By going and talking to over 100 conspiracy believers that a lot of the myths we had uh, were totally wrong and, in fact, kind of patronizing. But these folks defy simple categorization. They aren't all old people. They aren't all from a certain class or education level. They don't all have a certain political ideology. You know, folks who believe conspiracies come in all shapes and sizes and, and backgrounds. And you know, we had some Ivy League lawyers and we had, you know, folks who were incredibly young and, and urban, so, so all different backgrounds. What we found, there were a few through lines that connected all the, these folks we met with who had fallen down the rabbit hole. And the first was that they felt isolated. They, they were missing a strong sense of community or in-group or belonging, right? They, they had maybe moved to a new place or they'd lost their job recently and they weren't feeling connected socially. To, to some sort of strong identity. And that means that they're sort of questing and hungering for a group of people and, and, and an in-group to be part of. The second is that they felt disenfranchised from power. So they, they maybe weren't part of the information economy. They, they felt very far from Washington, D.C. Um, and they, they weren't really aware of how the sausage was made, so to speak. And so they were very quick to jump to conclusions about how power worked because they felt very far from it. And lastly, the the, the most common through line um, that we heard really loudly was just a mistrust of institutions. There was, there was actually often an antipathy towards institutions, right? These are the folks who are taking my, my well-earned dollars for taxes and they're forcing me to get vaccines and they're actually doing me doing me harm. Not only are they not serving me like they say they're supposed to, but these institutions of either government or media or, or, or healthcare are somehow harming me. That was a, 
a perception we heard quite a bit. Um, so that combination, that trio of isolation and disenfranchisement and mistrust um, is really a toxic brew. And it led people to find these sort of alternative communities, these spaces often online, sometimes in person, where people no longer felt isolated and they were told, hey, you can be part of this movement where you have real political voice. We're going we're gonna to make change um, or we're going to identify you know, the culprits behind your particular grievances and woes, and you can be part of fixing it. And so that's a really empowering and appealing, honestly, a really hopeful message to, to people. Mm-hmm. So I think the conspiracies often give people that, that hope and that community first and foremost. The ideology, the actual details of the belief is really secondary. You know, we've become so fractured in our community right now, and, and I, I think even within families, you know, probably most of us, I know I can sort of point to, you know, there, there, there's that saying, there's one in every family, right? And and I think probably all of us probably don't have to go too far out in our family tree to find that that relative, that aunt, uncle, the sister, brother, whoever it is, who's into this sort of thing. What's the best technique for trying to communicate with them and not have them, you know, put their shields up and and be defensive? Yeah, it's a it's a really good point, Dave. That we actually all already have some experience with this in one way or another, whether it's in our families or workplaces or friend circles. Um, and you're right that that if we come at folks with our facts and with our figures, that we absolutely they, they get their defenses up and they, it becomes a an argument. What I've found is the most effective way to to reach someone who's got sort of upside down conspiratorial beliefs is to first make them feel heard. They're seeking this sort of belief system because they haven't felt heard and empowered. So so make sure you actually listen to them and don't don't write them off. And second, you know, start to ask them questions and and poke and prod a little bit at the edges of their of their beliefs. And by doing that, you can start to plant some seeds of doubt, right, where they may not have a good answer for something, but you don't need to point out that their answer wasn't good. You just need to start to ask those hard questions that that make them really consider things. And, and lastly, you can build bridges with these folks by actually acknowledging real conspiracies. There have been conspiracies where, you know, government uh, uh armed Contras in, in Nicaragua um, or, mm. or in, you know, there's lots of, of fun examples of things that the CIA has done. And I think sometimes acknowledging those duplicitous actions by, by the elites um, can, can win some favor and say, hey, I'm not totally against the idea that conspiracies exist, but some of them are theories that aren't proven and, and some of them do have evidence behind them. So then you can help, help to tease out, hey, evidence here is important. In, uh, in discerning if something is a real conspiracy or just a conspiracy theory. What about at the higher level here, you know, from a, from a policymaking position, uh, obviously a, a nation that values free speech and uh, it's not against the law to tell a lie. Um, how do we go about trying to contain these things when they can do real harm? It's a really good question and one that a lot of academics and policymakers have, have wrestled with for a long time. So there's no silver bullets. And I do think we, we want spaces where people can really debate these conspiracy theories. I think where, where we've been looking to draw the line with some of our research is when do these become harmful? When do they start to infringe on other people's safety? And so one of the one of the lines of inquiry we had was 
At what point does a conspiracy theory motivate someone to violence? Can we actually pinpoint what the conditions are for that? Um, and we had a few, um, a few of the folks that we interviewed who really were willing to, to pick up a gun or another weapon and, and go commit acts of, of violence. And the distinguishing factor for them was that they felt some sort of existential threat. They felt that their, their lives, their livelihoods, their communities were truly going to be wiped off the map at any moment by whoever they perceived as behind the conspiracy theory. And that existential threat um, and that willingness to, to, to commit acts of sort of vigilante justice in their minds of, of violence, to me is where we can draw a line and say, hey, this, this incitement to violence, this rhetoric about, you know, quote unquote, defending yourself with violence, that's not okay. And, and that really can result in real world violence and, and harm against other communities. We've seen that with, there have been a number of, of acts of violence tied back to QAnon. So I think when it gets to that stage of, of sort of inciting rhetoric, that's when policy can really intervene and say this has gone, this has gone too far. And are there efforts underway for that sort of thing? I mean, again, you know, we're divided and we have a divided Congress. Uh, are there movements here to, to try to I don't, at least acknowledge we have a problem? I'll admit that that's beyond my area of expertise. I'm not sure what bills are, are in mm. progress, if any, on this. I can say that from the perspective of the tech platforms, there have been quite a few efforts in recent years to draw these really difficult lines that balance the need for free expression and debate and inquiry and, and research with removing this sort of incitement that can limit other people's free speech, right, by making them feel unsafe and unwelcome on these platforms. So there, there have been quite a few policies just in the last two or three years on things like harassment and incitement to violence. YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and others have all done, done quite a bit of updating to their policies around conspiracy theories, really in light of some of these recent attacks that were motivated by conspiracy beliefs. What do you think? I'm a sucker for any talk about conspiracy, so I love that interview. <laughs> One thing that stuck right. out to me is <clears throat> the reason conspiracies flourish is because of two incentive structures. One is money. I think it was uh, good of both of you to invoke what's happened with Alex Jones, where mm. he's made quite a fortune. Some of that is certainly in jeopardy now after uh, he's lost these civil cases, but lying and defaming other individuals with conspiracy theories has been lucrative to him in a monetary sense. And the other motivation mm -hmm. is political. You can gain a political advantage by having people believe certain conspiracies, like some of the election fraud conspiracies we've seen from 2020. And with those incentives, there's kind of a magnetic pull for people uh, who have power, who have money to foster these types of conspiracy theories and, uh, and they don't care necessarily about the broader impact that that's going to have on society or the corrosive impact that has on individuals. I mean, everybody, is, as you guys said in this interview, has a family member whose life has been ruined because they're deep into this conspiracy hole. So I just thought it was a right. fascinating conversation and um, always a, a subject I, I enjoy learning about and talking about. Yeah. 
Well, our thanks to Beth Goldberg for joining us. We certainly do appreciate her taking the time. our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.